If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. It seems nobody on the Prime Minister's staff is telling him what's going on in the country. That's right up there with, my dog ate my homework. Here, Scott Thompson. We talked about uh, hybrid work scenarios and four-day weeks and what have you for a long time, but obviously during a global pandemic, uh, the world was uh, <laughs> sat on its edge, and 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 everything changed. Everything changed. Willowbridge Community Services, a not-for-profit operating in Hamilton, Brantford, Six Nations, and beyond, is intent on instituting a four-day work week after a test run turned out, uh, turned out to be a wild success. To talk more about all of this, Leslie. John- Roslyn is with us, Executive Director of Willowbridge Community Services, and here now. Leslie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, thank you very much. Glad to be here. So, Leslie, first tell us what Willowbridge Community Services is about. Uh, Willowbridge uh, is a not-for-profit, as you said. Uh, they have two main uh, pillars of service. Uh, they service uh, individuals, uh, children and adults with developmental disability, and they also provide individual couple and family counseling. So um, uh, we've been around for like over 100 years uh, serving, like you say, uh, Hamilton, Brantford, Hamilton. Uh, I'm sorry, Niagara and Haldeman, Norfolk as well as Six Nations. It sounds like this has been a huge success. How did it all come about? Well, we were facing really um, a bit of a perfect storm. Uh, we had uh, huge uh, demand for service, uh, in part due to the pandemic. Uh, people had experienced increased levels of of distress, and that we saw uh, growing numbers of people with mental health concerns, family conflict, intimate partner violence. Uh, so we saw this uh, growing demand for service and growing wait lists, and it coincided. Uh, with the truly the biggest HR crisis I've seen in my career. Uh, we had a 32% resignation rate. Uh, we were unable to attract staff. We would post positions and no one would apply. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we just couldn't fill positions, so we couldn't deliver the necessary service. Um, and when we asked our staff why they were resigning, uh, what they told us is that, you know, our, our, we just weren't competitive. Our salaries had been stagnant uh, without increases from our ministry money, our ministry funding. Uh, of course, like we all know, there was an increased cost of living. Uh, there was a housing crisis. Uh, there was what they called the great resignation going on. Um, and we were uh, in a in a pickle, uh, and staff were telling us the staff that remained uh, were telling us that they were experiencing burnout and high stress levels, and poor work life balance. Um, and so it, it was clear that we couldn't just keep doing the same thing. Uh, we had to to think of new ways of doing business. Uh, so 
you know, we we started entertaining the notion of a four day work week probably a year and a half ago now uh, with our management team. Uh, we looked at different models of the four day work week. Uh, we looked at the results that were being seen globally with other companies that used it. And then we started talking about what it might mean in our workplace uh, at a very high level, right through to every single position in the agency. Um, so it, yeah, we decided as a management team that it was worth piloting and our board got behind that. Uh, so we engaged in a, in a six month pilot. Um, so during the pilot, uh, we, I mean, what was really important is is that we address some of these issues um, while also ensuring that we uh, increased our ability to meet this overwhelming level of distress in the community. So did you actually start this during the pandemic or was it after? It was, uh, we launched it in October of last year. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was still the tail end of the, the tail pandemic. End, yeah. So why yeah. do you think this works for your organization? Um, it has worked for us. Uh, and and I'd like to think, uh, I hope that other organizations might entertain it, given the level of success that we've seen with it. Uh, we saw, uh, first of all, it, in the six, during the six-month pilot, we had no resignations. Uh, we, our number of applicants tripled, oh, wow. the quality of our applicants skyrocketed. Um, and then there were kind of less expected gains. Uh, we saw a 67% reduction in sick time. Uh, we heard staff, we did staff surveys pre and post, uh, this pilot, uh, staff were reporting 20% less burnout and 56% of staff reported an improved work-life balance. Uh, but, you know, you say all that, uh, but as administrator, I also want to know that we're continuing to be productive. Um, our community saw no change. Uh, we were, we are open exactly the same hours we always were. Hmm. Um, and we, um, we actually, uh, measured productivity pre and actually we compared pre-pandemic productivity to uh, the pilot productivity and we had seen a 15 percent increase in productivity so we're getting short of time here leslie we're just getting okay. short of time here leslie is there is there any negatives any downfalls that you found um no there quite simply isn't <laughs> um, and at the simplest level, I mean, our agency is in the business of supporting families. And this was a win because this allowed us to support our staff and their families, yeah. wow. as well as meeting the needs of the families in our community. Um, I can honestly say of all the things I've done in leadership in my career in that human resource arena, uh, this was the most exciting uh, change that we've ever affected.
Wow, um, that is and, that is in, yeah. that is encouraging news, and it'll be interesting to see if uh, other organizations uh, take up the model. Leslie Josling with us, Executive Director of Willowbridge Community Services, and now a four-day work week after a test run turned out to be a great success. Leslie, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Absolutely, and thank you very much for having us. If you're around my age, uh, you know... <laughs> guy in his 30s 40s no uh you remember the band max webster uh hamilton board toronto-based musician uh, bob wagner has, sc- uh, sc- has scoured the archives over countless hours to bring audiences the definitive guide to one of canada's most prolific rock bands of all time in his new book max webster high class uh, to talk more about all of that the author bob wagner is with us now bob thank you for the time hope you're well Hey, Scott, thanks for having me. This is great. Oh, it's great because you're taking me back to my high school years. I remember seeing this band many times, including uh, at our high school. They were a staple there. Uh, what is it about this band that attracted the kids of the day? Um, they were, they were I, I would just simply describe them as an indie band, but that, that, that term didn't exist back then. They were just a band, but they were different. They just they didn't wear the clothes that rock stars wore. You know, Kim Mitchell would dress in pajamas. And they were a kind of like Frank Zappa, kind of left of center, very quirky, very bizarre, very humorous. And um, and they spoke about very uniquely Canadian things, especially Canadian things with reference to the alternative of the United States south of us. And people felt really, really attuned to that. And they felt very spoken to. You talked about the outfits. I remember that. I remember seeing, like you said, uh, Kim Mitchell, whether he's wearing uh, stockings or pajamas or whatever, and then platform shoes. And, uh, you know, and I'm asking myself the same question as a kid. Like, what did we? And it was just because they were different and they were ours. They were Canadian and uh, and 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 obviously uh, a great band. Why did you do this? How did you decide to do this? Oh, my goodness. I mean, they're all my all-time favorite band. They're an absolutely brilliant, brilliant band. I mean, we're talking about the goofiness on stage, but as composers and, and yeah. players and arrangers, just, they were brilliant, brilliant musicians. And did you get uh, much input from the band? Where are their heads on all of this? Oh, yeah. I interviewed almost all the different guys who played in the band. And uh, this goes back about four years now. And uh, so my first one I did was the keyboardist, Terry Watkinson. And then I got Mo Mike Tilka and Paul Kersey. And, um, and in the end, um, yeah, Dave, Dave Miles, d- different other peripheral people who engineers and producers and stuff like that. And in the end, uh, and Kim has kind of put his seal of approval on it and he, he loved the book. And so it's, it's great to basically have everybody on board with this now. You talked about uh, uh, what we liked about them, what stood out. Talk a little bit about the writing, because, again, you know, over and above um, the antics on stage, they were pretty deep musically. They The music was very, very different at the, uh, for the time. It really was. I mean, they had their influences. I mean, I mean, they definitely loved a lot of the jazz fusion bands that were happening at that time. So the Mahavishnu Orchestra and Return to Forever, that kind of stuff. And when they were on tour and they had a night off and they could see those kind of bands, just that's what they would be doing. They love that kind of stuff. But Kim particularly, he was into Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart, just that kind of stuff too. So they just had this 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 cornucopia of influences that made this absolutely unique music. And on, on the first album, you can definitely hear the bits of Zappa and, and Beefheart. And, yeah. And, and Kim was into Alex Harvey as well, but... But by the second and third albums, just they really have their own identity and they're truly as much as the word unique 
is thrown out there as a buzzword, just they truly were unique. There's no other band that sounds like in context of the moon and beyond the moon and lip service and gravity. Yeah. Just there's nothing that sounds like this. And it really makes the music stand the test of time. Why, what happened to this band? Why did they break up? Honestly, 95% of bands break up over money. And that's what it is. It's money and management and just not making enough of it. And because a Canadian band back then, unless you know, unless you sold tons and tons of records in the US, you're, you're yeah. basically balancing the books. And it just it became a bit of a strain. And you know, I, be, I wasn't there. I mean, but from just from what I've gleaned from the different people I've spoken to, that's basically what it was. And, uh, and it's, it's just one of those unfortunate stories in the, in the business that just it's money that can break up a band. But also there was the FM radio changed throughout the 1970s. It was at first FM radio was, you know, the just the the DJ just speaking whatever he wants to say and mm-hmm. playing whatever he wants to play. Kind of like that that Tom Petty song, The Last DJ. And uh, that's, that's truly what it was. And then playlists started showing up as advertisers started showing up and, and the nature of radio changed very much. And so they're pressuring the band to write hit songs. Right. And um, so we're used to this formula of how radio works today. And it clearly still works because we have radio and people love radio. But it was a tough time for a lot of artists in the 70s because it kind of changed over time. And, um, and that pressure to write this certain kind of song so you have hits on American radio. Max Webster were not writing three-minute radio songs. They were writing really yeah. interesting, quirky, introspective, fascinating, artistic, great music. And they just didn't want to do that. So there was a lot of push and pull with the manager and, and, um, you know, and, and just all kinds of things around that topic. But basically, bottom line, yeah, money. And uh, it happens to a lot of bands to this day. Uh, even at this time in the latter 70s and such, mid-70s and such, for a Canadian band to have success, it had to make it into the U.S., as you said. Uh, what was yeah. the situation for them in the U.S.? Did did they have much success there? Um, well, yes and no, because they, they, um, they didn't headline a lot in the U.S., but they backed a lot of bands. They backed Rush about 200 something times, yeah, and yeah. they were sometimes on the bill with as you know, acts as far and wide as Ario Speedwagon, the Dixie Drags, Rainbow, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, uh, the Dictators, um, all kinds of different bands like that. And uh, and they would play with Rush, and you know probably a third or half of the audience would really dig it, and they'd go to their local record store, and the records weren't there. And um, and that's unfortunately, um, that, that happened to some bands for sure. And you later find out it was because sometimes what record labels would do is they would just press albums and then not put them in the shops and use them as tax write-offs. Mm-hmm. And you don't know which bands that happened to, but um, but that's kind of a well-known thing now. That's what would sometimes happen in the music business. So this is one of those bands that just, you know, kind of got caught in various different kinds of crosshairs. And um, and the story isn't really clear, but, uh, but, it's, um, but it's unfortunate because they were such a great band and everywhere they went, just people loved that band, but they couldn't find their records in the shop. So the border nine times out of 10. Hmm. So uh, we only got a few seconds left. What stands out for you after doing all this research about this band? Oh my goodness, that it takes a village, that there are so many generous hmm. people in this world that if, if, you, if you have a common interest, that people will flock to help you and even take care of you in, in various ways. And just literally hundreds of people that, that helped me by sending me photos and recordings 
and and old high school yearbooks to get a concert date into the database. Just people have been absolutely amazing throughout this process, and it, it would not be possible if you didn't have an army of people around you. That's you know, it's it's been an amazing process. Bob Wagner with us, music historian, multi-instrumentalist, and radio host, author of Max Webster High Class. You can find out more at highclassmax.com. Bob, thanks so much for the time and insight and memories. Be well. Beautiful. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Leger Polling uh, has uh, done a survey in regard to Canadians and how they feel about the government's response to crime and addiction issues uh, in this country and what has happened over the last uh, several years. It's pretty fascinating because it seems as if uh, Canadians are on a different page than the government. Uh, the National Post headline is things are getting worse. Canadians of all stripes are fed up with government, uh, the government line on crime and drugs, says this poll. In every single democratic uh, demographic category, a clear majority of respondents said the Canadian justice system is too generous with bail and too lenient on violent crimes. To talk more about all of this, Andrew Enns is with us, Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leger, and with us now. Andrew, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I, uh, I am keeping well, uh, Scott. Pleasure to be back on your program. So, Andrew, are you surprised at, uh, at what we're hearing from Canadians? Give us a little bit of breakdown on on how Canadians feel about uh, crime and, and the government's position on it. Well, you know, answer the first question. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not very surprised with, uh, with some of the findings. We've, we've polled over the past, uh, I'd say, year a few times. We know... A large majority of Canadians think that the incidence of violent crime and, and the decline in safety in their communities has been getting worse, uh, you know, in, in, in that perspective. And so when we get into some of the details, um, yeah, we're seeing some fairly uh, some fairly high numbers in terms of like the uh, perceptions on the drug situation in their in their community. Seventy two percent say it's uh, it's serious of that. Thirty one percent very serious. So there's certainly some uh, some acuity there. Um, you know, you see in terms of what the priorities for for governments should be when it comes to tackling, uh, you know, incidences of uh, of crime, uh, violent crime. Fifty five percent say that should be the top priority. Illegal firearm possession, forty one percent. Drug abuse uh, and substance abuse, thirty seven percent. So. Yeah, there's um, there, there's there's definitely it's definitely one of those issues that uh, you know isn't far from I would say the uh, the minds of a lot of Canadians when uh, when you start talking about what uh, you know what gets their attention these days in in the, in the cities or communities they live. Andrew, how much impact do you think uh, the death of several police officers in the line of duty over the last year has impacted this result? I think it. I think it contributes. I think um, uh, you know those incidences, um, some of the random attacks that uh, certainly. Uh, I, well, I would say your part of the world has caught my eye, and so you know the subway situation in, in the GTA. Um, I think though we've had similar in, in where I am in Winnipeg. I think the other thing when you talk about some of the, those those police officers, I think the other factor that 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 comes with that is. Some of these, um, what I'll just say, like just shocking events, uh, criminal uh, events or actions, 
they're it comes later that they're being perpetrated by an individual that was you know out on bail or you know on the radar of police and so hence we asked a question on bail and and, you know 91 percent think uh we need to change things when it comes to violent offenders so i think those things really do contribute to a real um you know groundswell of 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 uh, perception uh, we certainly have the case with Paul Bernardo here as well, being moved from a maximum to a medium security prison, bringing these questions up again and when and when the gut, when and where and, and at what time the government knew about this. It seems whenever these concerns are mentioned, we hear more about handgun bans or more restrictions on those that are legally carrying guns. Is government missing the mark here? Is that not having an impact? Well, I think, you know, we, we asked a question on sort of the whole handgun uh, the handgun ban and, and you know how uh, how uh, you know how important it would be to uh, to uh, you know in terms of making things uh, you know safer in in uh, in communities in in larger you know look in parts of in parts of the country I'd say Eastern Canada um, and in larger urban centers there's a there's a, you know more support for sort of increased gun uh, you know gun restrictions. Um, but really, when you when you when you ask people, will that make them feel uh, you know safer? You know, increase gun restrictions. You know, forty seven percent basically say it would make them feel safer. You've got forty two percent said it wouldn't really make a difference. So I think, look, I don't think it would hurt, but I don't know whether or not that's necessarily uh, um, you know the the full panacea. I think what what's really troubling to people is some of the more visible evidence on the streets you know when you see Mm. um you know uh, like i you know like i'm not saying that they're rife with crime but like homeless encampments and and lots of people sort of hanging around you know places that's not good for sort of a general feeling of 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 feeling safe right and i think that's that's contributing to some of the perception that we're uh, we're dealing with here in our what we're picking up in our polling at leger Andrew ends with us, Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leger and Leger polling on how Canadians feel about government response to crime and addiction issues. Andrew, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Really appreciate the opportunity. You keep well as well, uh, Scott, and hopefully we'll talk uh, over the summer. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots of concerns about the journalism industry of late news that Mohawk College has suspended its journalism program. Obviously, our peers over at Bell, massive layoffs there. Let's bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin, senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Thank you, Scott. Uh, boy, another big uh, blow for uh, journalism, news from Bell, and, and now we're hearing uh, uh, education institutions like Mohawk suspending journalism programs. What are your thoughts when you hear stuff like this? Well, I'm, I'm saddened, but uh, in a way I'm not surprised. Uh, on a, for the universities and colleges, we need to remember that they are also businesses and that they have to operate by law to not carry a deficit every year. So for example, uh, last year I was asked to prepare a course on media ethics at the U of T for a summer school program at St. Michael's College, and I did. And uh, then I was told they're canceling it because I only had 15 uh, students enrolled and the, the U of T insists on a minimum of 20. 
So I think this is this is the way of the future. And and it's certainly the declining enrollment, uh, despite my brilliant uh, teaching methods, <laughs> um, uh, the, the journalism program at U of T was in decline when last time I looked. Yeah. Uh, not by much, but just gently, gently every year, a fewer, fewer students. Um, and I think that these kids aren't dumb. <laughs> they know that if they want to get a job somewhere, it may yeah. not necessarily be in journalism per se, but it could be in journalism related things such as startups or handling the uh, the the PR, which is not exactly journalism, but it has a connection to it. Um, and and also the same problem is happening to the in the humanities. Um, uh, fewer and fewer students are opting to study English, uh, sociology, uh, philosophy, all those all those things that were sort of part of the curriculum and part of the general interest among students a generation ago and maybe even less. But uh, times are tougher now. And I, th I also have a sense that uh, news organizations are trying to recapture what they believe they have lost through COVID. So they are now starting to get leaner and apparently meaner and uh, they're also saying that maybe AI, artificial intelligence, can be a factor in saving journalism. Uh, one of my students ended up at MIT in, in Cambridge, Mass. And she sent me a note saying that her professor said that writing is a waste of time. Journalists should be out there gathering information. Let AI write the story. And, add, and and journalists will add to it in a kind of an editing fa uh, fashion. And I thought, wow, that is really not the journalism that I recognize. But I think it's changing everywhere. So is journalism gone, Jeff, or is it just different now? And if so, where are the jobs there? Oh, if I knew that. <laughs> um, exactly. I think it's changing. And I, I'm not sure it's in some instances, I think it's not changing for the better. But in, and I think instead of uh, uh, moaning and complaining and and renting our garments and uh, beating our breasts, let's hang on and wait to see what happens. I think that there is clearly a need for strong local journalism, especially in Canada. What happened at Bell yesterday is frankly terrible news and it'll only exacerbate the creation of news deserts around canada hmm. so we have to look for ways in which local news and information which is the cornerstone of all journalism how that can be encouraged not so we just uh, get bits of uh, weather traffic and crime which you've heard me call the low-hanging fruit of local news but to go out and do more contextual stories about what's happening in our communities and why 
Um, and that to me is going to be, maybe I'm being unduly optimistic as usual, but I think that's going to be the way journalism is going to evolve. We all know that, that local is king uh, in, in many things, not only, ju- not only just journalism and, and media and such, but obviously big conglomerates are moving away from that standardized model, distributed, the exact opposite of what you're talking about. Um, is there any way it can work on a local angle? I mean, I've seen a couple of local uh, small radio stations who are making it work, but not under the template of a, of a large conglomerate. I think it's possible, and I've seen some examples of that as well. I think some new partnerships might be worth considering. That is to say, there are a lot of very interesting young people doing podcasts. Some are better than others, mm-hmm. but they are the ones that are often on the ground with real connections to the community. Is there some way those podcasters could be integrated into mainstream media in a more effective way? I think that's one of the things that I'm I'm eager to see if we can figure that out. And also, it's going to put, I have to say, more pressure on the CBC to be a little more thoughtful and more comprehensive and, and a little less uh, trying to imitate you guys, uh, which I think is there needs to be a kind of a, a balancing between what public radio does and what commercial radio does. And I think we can all get along, as they say. <laughs> Jeffrey Dvorkin with a senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age, the state of journalism as we see it. Jeff, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My, my pleasure. You too. All right. Well, at least here's some good news in and around our legal system. Della Millard and uh, and Mark Smith stay behind bars after their appeals for sentencing in the murder of Tim Bosma, as well as the murder of Laura Bo- uh, Babcock, both denied. To talk more about all of this, Alex Pearson, host of the Alex Pearson Show on 640 in Toronto and covered the Tim Bosma murder trial for us here at CHML. Alex, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hello. Yeah, busy times. God, it never stops. So do you think that what happened with the Paul Bernardo fiasco and the lack of, I don't know what the heck happened there, the left hand doesn't seem to know what the right hand is doing, do you think that had any impact on any of this whatsoever? Sorry, the Bernardo, you cut out there just a little bit where I did. Uh, Sorry, Sorry, Alex, do you you think that what happened with the Paul Bernardo screw-up and and all of that and the miscommunication and the minister not knowing what what his staff is doing and such, do you think the outcome of that had anything to do with any of of the the Millard and Smitch case? No, 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 no. These things are are take months and months and months to go through. So the the three judges would have already had all this, um, you know, so no, I don't. But, but, but because of what we're seeing with Bernardo um, and things that come to my mind is if that's the way we're going in this country and it clearly is uh, the direction we're going, uh, guys like Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch can be guaranteed uh, to be living pretty large uh, fairly soon. Um, and we've seen this before. Um, you know, I go to the Terry McClintock and um, um, Michael Rafferty. Mm, yeah. uh, you know, they killed Tory Stafford. I covered both of those and I know exactly what happened to that child. And yet... You know, he, after only six years, went to medium security, um, and now apparently he's living in a pretty cozy situation with a townhouse. And Terry Lynn McClintock, who got to a healing lodge and then was put uh, into a medium security. I mean, look, they, they, they brutalized and killed and tortured a child. And, and in this country, whether it's these two or Paul Bernardo, 
you know, or even Dylan Millard or uh, Dylan Millard and Mark Smith. They, they they apparently are not only allowed privacy laws, uh, but they are allowed the, you know the, the opportunity to have a better better days down the, the line, despite the fact that they absolutely destroy people's lives. We've certainly saw over the course of the last year several police officers die in the line of duty. Um, obviously, we've seen the, the, the mishandling of the Bernardo case and such. And a new Leger poll out that says Canadians are not happy with the, go- the way the government is handling crime uh, in this regard. Is the tone changing here in the country? Are, is Canada waking up to this? I sure hope so. I mean, I sure hope so. We have moved in a direction of restorative justice. And we have moved so far. I mean, even when I was covering courts full time 20 years ago, I was like, how is this like a balance of justice? And we've now moved so far to one direction towards the accused um, that there's no justice. I mean, the victims of violent crime in this country are just an afterthought. And we like, you know, all the leaders, all the politicians are quick with their thoughts and their prayers. They're quick with the don't worry, we're with you every step of the way. And then, you know, you talk to a guy like Rodney Stafford, as I did last week, who found out nine months after his daughter's killers were moved to medium security and a, and a healing lunch. Like, how is that okay? So I, I think Canadians are rightfully, frankly, uh, angry about this, and they should be, because this government has moved us, I think, in such a terrible direction. Um, and no one should mistake what Paul Bernardo in this move says to us. And, and I'm afraid, you know, we grew up at the same time, Scott. I grew up in Hamilton. I remember those days. It was a really yeah. scary time when Paul yeah. Bernardo was hunting and raping women and those you know, Christian French and, and Les Mahoff. You mean those days, if you were alive during those days, you understand the visceral anger. So to suggest that this government sat on this for months and not only said, no, that, this is not going to happen, or, I don't know, maybe pick up the phone and be a little humane, to the victims of, of the crimes. I mean, it's crazy, but there's no question. Paul Bernardo's been moved, and the idea is that they've got to prepare him for maybe one day he'll get out. I mean, honestly, I'm not. Who dies on the hill of Paul Bernardo? Like, really? I mean, it's crazy. And so I, I'm glad that Canadians are finally waking up because we absolutely have to get back to some semblance of balance. And certainly, we are so long overdue, Scott protecting victims of crime and actually doing something instead of sending them hashtags. Hashtags don't cut it. They deserve respect, they deserve support, and they deserve the basics of knowing what is going on with their with their cases. I can her. I, I can certainly understand uh, the role uh, of the correction system and rehabilitation and trying to give people a second chance. But then there's a line once you become a, a dangerous offender or mass killer or yeah. serial killer, uh, as you've said. So mm-hmm. do, do we need to change the culture here that re- rehabilitation is the goal? I mean, it, it certainly should be one of them. But my goodness, in something like this where you've got Tim Danson, the lawyer from the Mahaffey mm-hmm. and French family, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, talking about doctors calling this man a psychopath. I mean, yeah. at, at what point do you say, you know what, what works for some doesn't work for all? It just seems that we have a rubber stamp kind of it's all about rehabilitation and we yeah. have to do this. Yeah, no, this is this is restorative justice, what it looks like. And, and we have moved to a direction where you've got all these academics. You know, they closed all the psychiatric hospitals like Penetanguishene and Shadok because that wasn't fair. And so now we've got a lot of mentally ill people who should be probably confined, who are a danger to themselves and danger to society. Now we just 
have this attitude of, no, we're just going to all live together and everyone's going to have this chance, the restorative justice stuff that we've seen time and time again, where certainly on bail issues that, you know, the government wrote it so that you have to consider someone's background, maybe they had some hardship. And, and, and what it's done, I think, is really led to a manipulation of the system. Um, you know, everyone's got a sad song to sing. Do some people have a sadder song? Absolutely. But ultimately, we have to figure out in, in this country, what do we stand for? Um, we know that life sentences aren't life sentences. Can we at least pretend that if someone's going to jail for 25 years, that's where they go? Um, if, if, you, if we can't keep a psychopath, a sadistic psychopath in jail without wondering, you know, gee, should he have some hope? You know, are we being too mean? Then I think we've completely lost our way. I think overwhelmingly, from what I've heard, certainly, is that people are very angry about this. So for all the scandals, you know, Scott, that we see with this government, whether it's SNC, the We Charity, uh, anything, blackface, you name it, uh, the interference, all these things, it's the Homolka, it's the Bernardo that people go, are you kidding me? Because it's personal, yeah. right? It's personal. Mm. When you know what those girls went through, when you know what those women who would be hunted, I read the AG report on it, and it was not an easy read of what this man, you know, did. And the fact that Carla Mocha got the deal of the century on this, most Canadians, I think, say, I don't have an issue with at least him staying for, for life and, and rotting there. I don't care. I don't care if he dies in this. Alex Pearson with us, host of the Alex Pearson Show on 640 in Toronto. Covered the Tim Bosma murder trial here for us at CHML. Millard and Smitch stay behind bars. Alex, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Be well to you, too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've certainly seen that uh, Canada's military is uh, certainly not up to what it needs to be. And uh, remember the leak of secret information, the Pentagon leaks of a few months back where um, it was leaked that Canada had expressed to NATO uh, allies uh, and NATO officials that Canada would never meet its targets. Well, now Canada is missing out on NATO's largest ever air exercises in Germany. Because our air forces are currently committed to modernization activities, yet we had years to plan for this. The article in the National Post from John Iveson: Canada is missing a crucial NATO experience, sorry, exercise, uh, because our air force is up on bricks. In a shocking and embarrassing development, DND said the air, the RCAF was unable to participate because many of our aircraft and personnel are currently committed to modernization activities. Uh, repairs, what have you. Uh, let's bring in Richard uh, Shamuka, Senior Fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, and is with us now. Richard, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Thanks for asking. What does modernization activities really mean? It means our Air Force can't perform for what it's uh, what it's required for. I, I mean, this is not a surprise. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I know I've mm-hmm. seen, had this article, and, and I know, uh, I think, believe Andrew Coyne as well sort of discussed this. But yeah. uh, the, the Air Force had said that it wasn't going to do any European missions. Uh, I believe it was in December the Chief of the Air Staff uh, stated that, which at the time was a pretty big you know should have been a pretty big sign uh this is basically the realization of what he had said was that uh canada used to participate in a mission called the baltic air policing mission and we also had a a rotating contingent that we would go into romania to defend that nato partner uh and as of december the the government has says that it's unable to meet that commitment which is a pretty stunning kind of um 
uh, sort of realization or, or sort of uh, a you know outcome of, of years of mismanagement of the uh, defense uh, defense file, specifically in the Air Force. We certainly know that after the Cold War and such, uh, obviously, uh, political parties of all stripes sort of let the guard down when it came to uh, Canada's military. That being said, the last several years, there's been a big change, uh, and most recently with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Can we keep selling the same theme that, you know, we're doing our best, we're peacekeepers, we're this, we're that, we're there when we're needed? Can we keep selling the same tone? No. Absolutely not. And, and I mean, you see, I, I know you talked about the Discord leak uh, in the Washington Post. Uh, that was a couple months ago about Canada never hit 2%. Uh, sort of my discussions with American policymakers and European ones, they're well aware that Canada is kind of not doing really well. They're actually quite uh, dismayed at the, the level of sort of effort that we put into defense, our inability to meet even minor areas. It's a bit of galling, I think, this specific situation you're talking about, because this government, I think if you go back to 2016, they had claimed that they needed to buy 18 Super Hornets desperately because they, they were going to meet simultaneously our commitment to NORAD and NATO. Uh, and they didn't have enough fighters. They had to, like, sole source this, which is a bit of a debacle. Like, that that, should, that purchase should have never happened. They should have just continued with the decision they ultimately made, which is to buy the F-35. But they, they claimed that this is so vital and they need to sole source this. And now we can we can barely meet one of the commitments, i.e., our NORAD one, where we've completely sloughed off our our uh, NATO commitment to, to help defend our allies. So I mean, this is it, our allies have taken note. Uh, I think it, it makes it difficult if we want trade deals or any other sort of concessions on other issues. They point to our defense file and they say, "Look, you aren't pulling your weight here. Like this is this is not acceptable." And and we know this, and and you've got to do something about it. Does this resonate with Canadians now? I think so. Uh, I think there was a, I believe the Angus Reid poll just a couple of days ago that said two thirds of Canadians feel that we aren't pulling our weight or something to that effect. Uh, I know at McDonald Laurier Institute we've done some, we've done sort of poll aggregation and that that shows that Canadians are kind of concerned about this area and they think that if not two percent, we definitely have to do more and you know maybe do it more efficiently. So I think it does resonate. I think. If you think about the government's messaging, they always want to say, look, we, we're doing something. We're, we're good international partners. And even their messaging when they go out to the world, it's often aimed at our own domestic audience to say, we're here and we're, we're doing something, right? Uh, the reality is that we aren't. And it's now, you know, we're a bit threadbare in the forces and it's becoming apparent there's no way to hide it, right? If our allies see it, right, and our allies are calling us out on it, it's kind of hard to go back to Canadians and say, oh, yeah, we're doing everything our part. It's like, no, no, you're, our own allies are saying we aren't, we aren't doing enough and we need to do more. So I think there is a if, if that's the core concern that we are pulling our weight in the world, that's we're, we're just not doing it. Canadians see that they're going to respond to it to some degree. Yet we see the prime minister head off to Ukraine the day after David Johnston resigns as if we're doing something. Oh, I sure. I mean, if you look again, so much of the messaging is, is almost like performative, right? To say, look, we're, we're here to show that we're, we're, we're a good partner. And, and in Ukraine, we have spent a lot. I mean, but at the same time, a lot of it is covers up some pretty serious gaps in our own armed forces. I mean, if we watch this ongoing Ukrainian offensive that, uh, that they're trying to take against Russia in the past couple of weeks here, a critical component of that is our is air defense, right? We see a lot of like Russian... Uh, loitering uh, munitions that are taking out uh, tanks and whatever. Canada's had an air defense uh, replacement program on the books for about seven years, and it's still going to take a couple more years before they even get it. 
get a system to actually defend against it. And it won't defend against a lot of the arms that we may potentially face. So when our allies look to us to say, can you provide something like, let's say, to help defend Latvia or, you know, participate in this mission, Canada comes back and says, no, we don't because we don't have the equipment or the people mm. that are ready to do this. And that's the kind of the sort of the issue. That's the kind of where the rubber hits the road for for these uh, for for defense. So Which, I mean, it's good to say go there and you know support Ukraine, but it's in some cases it's really the actual forces, like the stuff that you know we need to actually defend or be a good partner, just doesn't exist or is or is in a really bad shape. Richard Schmuka with us, senior fellow, McDonnell Lurie Institute, talking about Canada missing out on NATO's largest ever air exercise. Because, well, as uh, John Iveson said, our planes are on blocks. Richard, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots of fallout in regard to the decision to move Paul Bernardo, notorious uh, serial killer from a maximum security prison to a medium security prison, prison, especially on how this was not communicated, apparently, from corrections to the prime minister's office. Now we're hearing that, in fact, it was communicated uh to the appropriate departments but somehow it's not getting to the safety minister it's not getting to the prime minister due to some sort of internal issue uh with mendicino saying he was surprised to hear the day after that this was all going on despite his department hearing about it three months ahead of time and then a couple of days before it actually happened how does it happen let's bring in ari goldkind toronto criminal lawyer legal expert and with us now ari thanks for the time hope you're well great to be with you scott you as well uh, as you see all of this unfold, Ari, obviously you're old enough to remember this. Um, what are your thoughts when you hear of what has happened? Well, other than you saying and outing my age and not thinking I'm a fresh 18-year-old newbie, <laughs> I, I think this is actually, Scott, I think so much of this story is not being told accurately. I think that the Canadian public is being scammed. And I'll explain why, and I think we're distracted from the real issues here. Starting from the top, if you saw Marco Mendocino today, after keeping reporters waiting for hours, if you didn't notice the smug look on his face where he was not answering questions, this represents, I think, an ongoing smugness. And I'm not being a partisan. I this week criticized Pierre Polyev for, I thought, some really tone-deaf things about Bernardo, he said. So I can call it as I see it. But when you look at the smugness of what Mendocino is saying, what the prime minister is saying, essentially, Scott, throwing their staffs under the bus. Yeah. This is what is astounding to me, Scott. And I'll tell you, we live in a media day and age now where there's layoff after layoff, hardworking journalists. You'll recall that the head of CNN resigned because he was having a consensual relationship with another adult that worked at CNN. Why is that relevant? Because the buck tends to start and stop at the top. And when Marco Mendocino comes out and says, I knew nothing about it, but his office knew about it since March, Scott. This is really important for your listeners to understand. From March, and then the, then the correction services writes Marco's office again and says, not only are we doing this, here are some talking points to explain to the public why. The idea that Marco Mendocino, as you mentioned in the intro, comes out the day after the you-know-what hits the fan and starts clutching his pearls and saying, this is terrible, this is egregious, this is crazy. You don't think he went to his staff 
and you don't think he knew before or at least said something to his staff, which is, did you guys know? Now they're being caught. You see the prime minister throwing his office under the bus. Does anybody really believe that the staff in an office didn't tell their respective bosses that Canada's most notorious piece of garbage, serial killer, dangerous offender, from March wasn't being moved. If you believe that, I don't know that I have a cliche about Swampland in Florida for you, but I would like to see Marco Mendocino, Scott, answering these questions under what's called an oath from his former business, rather than these assertions that to me, and the disrespect he showed reporters today, by the way, Scott, showing disrespect to a reporter is showing disrespect to the Canadian public that relies on this. these reporters. I think there's a scandal underfoot here, and I don't think we should be distracted by the new shiny object. So uh, this is less about Corrections Canada and more about lack of communication, the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing in government? Not only that, but the public being lied to. Here's why. And you hit the nail on the head, Scott. There's a huge problem with this story, and I know we probably have to go to break soon, so I'm going to try and cut it to the quick. The problem here is that the Canadian public was not told why Bernardo is being moved. If the Canadian public was told, here's why we're doing it, we need the space in Millhaven, he's not a flight risk, we have better programming for a piece of garbage like him in the Laurentians, if the Canadian public didn't like it, Scott, I'd be the first one to sit here and say, who cares? The Canadian public doesn't like a lot of things. Twitter hates a lot of things. But there's rules and arm's length. This is the key. CSC operates independently of the government of the day. But the CSC, Scott, and I'm going to get technical, but this is really important, came out and, in my view, lied or deceived or pulled the wool over the public's eyes by saying, Bernardo's right to privacy trumps the French and Mahaffey families and the eight, the 14 women he raped and their families. Bernardo's privacy trumps the rights of Scott Thompson and Scott Thompson's audience this afternoon to understand why he was moved. That is a bunch of bunk. That is ridiculous. And in the CSC's own manual, it says in exceptional circumstances, Bernardo's rights don't trump anybody else. And if you can't come up and say, Bernardo is an exceptional circumstance, literally the boogeyman that the public should have a right to know about. It's him. Then you add in the Mendocino throwing his staff under the bus when they knew since March. And apparently the right hand, I'm going to steal your line, Scott, doesn't talk to the left, but he comes out publicly and throws his staff under the bus. How is that not something that a minister who the buck stops with is supposed to take responsibility. I'm sorry, this whole thing stinks, but it's not the move that stinks, it's the handling of it. Uh, got less than a minute here, uh, a few seconds. Sure. What should the Prime Minister, what can the Prime Minister do? Well, the Prime Minister should really ask for Mendocino's resignation. If you want a short answer within a minute, there is no Minister of Public Safety who keeps the public less safe than this man. And it's not personal, lovely guy, very personable, but the public has not been served by that ministry or by that office. One, resign. Number two, don't join Mendocino in now throwing your office under the bus. And three, stop telling the public that you can control what CSC does. Tell the public that you're going to change this idea of privacy where a monster like Bernardo 
has more rights than the Scott Thompson audience to understand how our system works or doesn't work. Sunlight is the best antiseptic every single time. Ari Goldkind with us, Toronto criminal lawyer, on the ongoing fallout from the decision to move Bernardo from a maximum to medium security prison. Ari, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Great to be with you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Moscow is warning that relations with Canada are, quote, on the verge of being severed. I really didn't think they were that strong. Uh, this after the government uh, has moved to forfeit a, uh, forfeit a massive Russian cargo plane. Uh, the plane has been sitting on the tarmac at Toronto's Pearson since February of 2022. Russia says we perceive this act as cynical and shameless theft. What happens now, and at, uh, what about that relationship with Russia? Let's bring in R.L. Brown, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, and with us now. R.L., thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Tell us about this Russian cargo plane that is sitting at Pearson. It has been since February of 2022, uh, and, and I guess now uh, it will be sold. What will happen to this plane now? The intent uh, declared by the government of Canada is that it will seize it, that it, uh, what well, it already has uh, in essence been in our possession, and that it will either be sold or it will be transferred to Ukraine, which would be kind of ironic because this uh, aircraft, an Antonov uh, 124, uh, was designed in Ukraine by the Antonov Bureau and uh, it's also the case that Russia, when it invaded in the second invasion in 2022, it destroyed uh, the largest airplane in the world that was the pride of Ukraine, the mm-hmm. Maria. Uh, and so for Ukraine to get hold of this aircraft as compensation would be both symbolic and uh, substantive. But it does involve very difficult legal challenges because this would be seizing something to that belongs nominally at least to a private company consequently if there is this kind of seizure and there's a formal court application this can be challenged and so you could have a drawn out uh, legal case the rush of course uh, has uh, threatened uh, reprisals but they have uh, already engaged in all sorts of reprisals so as much as this is something that indicates that Canada is taking a lead, it would be innovative, there would be very significant danger to Russian private companies if other countries follow suit. Uh, it is a difficult uh, achievement to do legally, and there are certain problems in international law. Another suggestion was made that I think perhaps might ultimately be more productive, and it was made by Larry Summers, Philip Zelico, and Rob Zerlick, and these were respectively uh, former Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, a very senior diplomat, and uh, the U.S. Trade Representative, and uh, the former President of the World Bank, and that was that instead we should go after the sovereign funds of Russia, about $300, million, $300 billion, which of which is is abroad um and this would be a state countermeasure so what uh, this could be done is uh, what could be done rather in this case would be essentially a kind of extrajudicial means of self-help in the international system and as long as these countermeasures are proportional uh, 
uh, to the wrong that uh, has been done, and that is the invasion uh, of Ukraine, this illegal aggression, the horrific damage that was caused, which estimates uh, for the rebuilding of Ukraine are at around $400 billion. Uh, dollars, mm. this could be well justified. And I think uh, in terms of public international law, it may be more doable and it uh, may be uh, less risky uh, in terms of achieving success than what is being proposed right now. Uh, how significant is this uh, seizure? Is this a loss for Russia? Do they care? A plane's a plane. It's only one. Uh, is it more symbolic than anything? What they are really worried about is the precedent that uh, if we go through with this and then we go after other private assets, because this is the first kind of move by a country in G7 or us, we're going after uh, these private uh, assets we might go after the assets of various uh, oligarchs as well that other countries may follow but it depends particularly on the legal systems how prolonged they would be and uh, uh, we don't know just how successful this would be at the end but that is the main concern in moscow that this could sort of begin something that would be difficult to stop, that would, uh, that would create endless legal entitle, uh, entanglements for their companies. But, you know, we should be uh, aware of how much of an uphill battle this is. Hmm. The various oligarchs and the various companies that Russia has uh, built, they have a very tangled web around the world. Sometimes ownership is not very clear. Sometimes minority shares uh, have considerably more influence than it would seem in terms of uh, proportion. And so this is why going back to what I mentioned first, and that is to go for state countermeasures, we go after the roughly $300 billion that uh, Russia has abroad, which has been frozen. That I think might hit Russia much harder. That could be transferred to Ukraine and uh, I think that would send the most powerful message. But I'm not averse to trying this. I am just concerned about how long this would take, uh, uh, what the prospects of success are in in courts. Um, would there be opposition uh, in other countries because they're worried about uh, going after private companies? And that that uh, uh, is something to to be tested. Uh, Moscow says that uh, relations with Canada on the verge of being severed. What kind of relationship is there with Russia? As you pointed out, there's not that much of a relationship left. Our trade relationship has virtually collapsed. We used to import from Russia over one and a half billion dollars, I think, uh, per year. That was the latest figure before the war started. And since then, uh, that trade has gone down by something like 80 percent. Uh, and in fact, in the past several months, uh, pretty well down to to zero. We used to get um, platinum from them uh, and nitrates for fertilizer, uh, fertilizer and so on. And uh, uh, that, that uh, basically has has uh, disappeared. So I don't think there's that much to salvage in in economic terms. Uh, but, 
you know, we still have diplomatic relations. And mm. uh, so if they were to actually break off diplomatic relations because they would view this as such a severe threat uh, because of the possibility of emulation elsewhere, uh, then, you know, we would have uh, fewer mm. means of diplomatic communication. But they can also all, always be replaced by other means. You know, we can do it through the Swiss or yeah. some other. So I, I don't think we need to be overly worry about the Russian threat of retaliation in this case. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. Arl, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me on. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. How about you? So far, so good, but I forgot. I've got to apologize. Uh-oh. I've got to apologize to Walmart uh, Walmart employees, uh, specifically their greeters. Uh, I, I think twice now I've made reference to the Prime Minister saying that he's like a Walmart greeter. Uh, he knows what's on aisle five, but has no idea what's going on in the rest of the store as far as the cash the management, the HR, the supply management, all that sort of thing. And I got a note saying, please, um, that's, we're taking that as an insult. So I apologize to Walmart greeters. <laughs> Although the prime minister may be knocking on the door for a job anytime soon. Uh, you know things are going not so well right now in the government when the people at Walmart are saying, please do not compare us <laughs> to the prime minister. To the prime minister. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's, oh, you know what, this is, my. this is, uh, you and I were talking about this the other day. This, this happens to government. It's it's no question. I mean, you look back uh, at the go back to Justin Trudeau's father, the end of the Trudeau government or the end of the Mulroney government or the end of the Harper government or the end of the Kretschmer governments. It seems nobody leaves with everybody saying, you know what? I wish you'd stick around a little longer. They they, it's it's they they get flabby. They get lazy. They get confident. They get careless. They get over whatever. And it, it seems like it's always the case. You know, everyone always says, well, leave them. If you're an artist, a singer, or whatever, leave them wanting more. Who's the politician who has ever yes. walked out and left them wanting more as opposed to saying, get out of here? Well, I don't know. When Justin did uh, the eulogy for his father, he was saying he wasn't going to come back anymore after coming back and saving us for the second election, as he referred to. Um, I, I don't know. I, I you know, I, I think there's getting there's one thing to get bored of government, get whatever. But, um, you know, I, I think what we're seeing here is a government that appears that it just isn't in control of what's going on. But that's, I mean, that's what I'm whether saying. It's, whether it's election interference, whether it's communication, whether it's Paul Bernardo, um, like how can you keep blaming others for your mistakes? How can you keep throwing your staff or great Canadian institutions under the bus? Yeah, no, that's exactly what I'm saying is these things, the governments begin to, the flaws and the warts that maybe weren't there at the beginning all begin to seem to start happening. And again, I'm I'm not pointing just at them. This is a, yeah. it, provincially, you know, Mike Harris's government had this and Dalton McGuinty's government had this. Mm-hmm. And it just, when you've been in power for a while, it for whatever reason, it seems as though you begin to lose the narrative and lose the focus and you know that's not to say that these liberals couldn't win another election 
Oh, yeah. However, it's, it's however, the conservatives to lose. Yeah. However, when that last poll, what Abacus, I think it was, came out with the poll the other day that says 81% of Canadians say it's time. Mm-hmm. You're like, that, that's, that's a deep hole to climb out of unless you've got some magical thing you can do. And the problem is many of the magical things that you would think might have worked earlier, like paying billions of dollars for electric vehicle battery plants, those are now blowing up in your face. Because people are saying, wait a second, it's five, what is it, five million dollars a job the government is giving? Even the things that you might have done that would have helped your numbers earlier on are now seeming to go against you. Another interesting, another interesting stat came out today. Tomorrow at three o'clock uh, in the afternoon, we will hit officially yes. forty million Canadians. That's astounding when you think about it. We're talking about that in the seven o'clock hour today. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I when we when I was a kid, when you were a kid, I mean, back in the seventies, it was about half that. We've like we've so in from if in the time the hundred first hundred years of Canada we got to about twenty and then it's taken us half the time to get to forty. Presumably, it'll take half the time again, and we'll be at sixty. Yeah, the predictions for the next ten years are huge as well. Well, don't forget. Uh, I believe I can't remember the name of the centen- the Century Group, the the Century Plan. There was there was a plan that Brian Mulroney was a part of, and others who talked about that we would eventually have a hundred million Canadians. And uh, you know, I. It's a really interesting... We certainly, you would think, have the room with the size of our country yeah, to put them. Yeah. But there's a lot of challenges that come with this. You, like, we need... We're not producing... We're not creating babies the way we once did. No. So you need people to keep the economy going and to keep the services and the programs going, pay taxes to pay for old age pensions and health care and all the rest. You need to keep having this country growing. But then there's the challenges that obviously come with it. For example, we don't have enough housing as yeah. it is, let alone. Yep. So, so you know, there's really good. There's things that aren't so good. That's not a that's not a let's be xenophobic and say immigration sucks and stop all immigration. That's not it. But any anything, you're going to have good things and more difficult things and challenges. And we certainly have those good things and challenges with this. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great one, Scott. Thanks again. Thanks, sir. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. And oddly enough, on the same topic we were just chatting about, Melanie emails, Canada will have a population of 40 million by 3 p.m. on Friday. I'd better make up the spare room. Nighty night. Keep right except to pass.